ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday the 26th of December. I'm Kim Landers, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is vowing to deepen the fighting against Hamas in Gaza, saying the military campaign won't stop until victory. His comments come after a visit to Israeli troops in Gaza. Meanwhile, the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says more than 70 people have been killed in an Israeli airstrike on a refugee camp. Gavin Coote reports. Palestinian man Ibrahim Yusuf is desperately searching for his wife and four children. He says are trapped under the rubble of the Magazi refugee camp in Gaza City. After dinner, the strike happened here. I came back to find the house in this condition. I found only one of my children alive. The others, their mother, three daughters and my four-month-old son are all still under. What can I do? The Gazan Health Ministry blamed Israeli airstrikes for the deadly attack on the camp, which it says killed more than 70 people. Despite the rising death toll, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel will keep fighting until it achieves complete victory. On a visit to IDF troops in Gaza, he explained military pressure is the only thing that will get Israeli hostages back. October 7 is not over. It is not over. We have to make sure that it never happens again. This requires what each and every one of you is asking for, just to continue until the end, until the end, and I'm just proud of your determination. International pressure continues to rise for an end in fighting, though. Pope Francis has lamented what he called the appalling harvest of innocent civilians during his Christmas message at the Vatican. The pontiff appealing for the release of Israeli hostages and for humanitarian aid to reach Palestinian civilians trapped by the conflict. How many innocents are being slaughtered in our world, in their mother's wombs, in odysseys undertaken in desperation and in search of hope, in the lives of all those little ones whose childhood has been devastated by war? They are the little Jesuses of today. King Charles also alluded to the 11-week-old war raging in Gaza during his Christmas Day message from Buckingham Palace. At a time of increasingly tragic conflict around the world, I pray that we can also do all in our power to protect each other. The words of Jesus seem more than ever relevant. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Such values are universal, drawing together our Abrahamic family of religions and other belief systems across the Commonwealth and wider world. Tensions are also ratcheting up between Israel and Iran, a key backer of Hamas. Iran state media says a senior member of the country's Revolutionary Guards has been killed by an Israeli airstrike outside the Syrian capital, Damascus. The advisor, known as Sayyad Razi Mousavi, was responsible for coordinating the military alliance between Syria and Iran. Iran's Revolutionary Guards has vowed to make Israel pay for killing the high-ranking general. Gavin Coote reporting. Nearly three weeks after disappearing, jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny has been found in what's been described as one of the country's toughest prisons. Known as the Polar Wolf Colony, it's just above the Arctic Circle, putting the Kremlin critic far away from Moscow as President Vladimir Putin seeks re-election next year. Kathleen Ferguson reports. 
Alexei Navalny has been missing for three weeks, with many fearing he'd met the same fate as many of Vladimir Putin's enemies. But now he's been found. His spokesperson is Kira Yamish. The lawyer uh, saw him today, so he is uh, well, uh, especially given the fact that he was transferred for three weeks to this place. Uh, so this is the information I have right now. The prison he's being held at is ominously known as the Polar Wolf Colony, nearly 2,000 kilometres northeast of Moscow in the frozen Yamal Nenets region. It's considered the toughest prison in Russia and is known for its severe winters. Most of its prisoners have committed the most serious crimes. Kira Yamish says the Kremlin's treatment of Navalny defies reason. There is no law uh, in Russia that is applied to Alexei. They always create his, uh, for him special conditions and they don't have anything to do with law. Uh, so we don't have any illusions. We know for sure that uh, in this new colony, uh, his conditions would be even worse than they were before. But the thing is that this colony is very distant. It is very difficult to access it. And uh, for lawyers, it will be very, very difficult uh, to go there and to see Alexei. Navalny has been jailed in Russia since the beginning of 2021. He was arrested after he returned to his country, after recovering in Germany from nerve agent poisoning, which he blames the Kremlin for executing, an accusation it denies. Before he was jailed, he organised major anti-Kremlin rallies and campaigned against government corruption. Before he was in a um, strict regime colony and now he is in a special regime colony, which is uh, more harsh. Uh, and um, it is, uh, well, I mean, everything is different there. I mean, uh, he will have uh, less phone calls, less meetings with relatives, less parcels he can receive. But the thing is that even before when he was in this lighter version of colony, he didn't have already any phone calls, any meetings and any parcels. Kira Yamish says Russia's president is trying to isolate his foe ahead of the election in March. It's uh, in the north, uh, so it is very cold there. And even today, uh, the light there is for two hours per day. So, I mean, um, the conditions, uh, like the environment conditions there are much worse than they were before in Vladimir region that is close to Moscow. Uh, so from this point of view, they definitely try to isolate Alexei and to make it more difficult to access him there. Uh, and also they are just trying to make his life uh, as unbearable as it possibly can be because uh, this prison will be much uh, worse than the one that was before. Alexei Navalny has denied all charges against him and has spoken out about Russia's judicial system being corrupt. Kathleen Ferguson reporting. Despite cost of living pressures, Australians are still expected to spend more than a billion dollars at the Boxing Day sales today. However, economists say it's not the big retail event it once was, although the sector is still optimistic. Isabel Masali prepared this report. Scuba diving kit! Yes! Yes, 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 yes. AB and her family have brought their Christmas presents to Perth City Beach. It seems there's plenty to go around, but she says this year it required extra effort to make it possible. Just got my property revalued and assessed mortgage-wise. The banks aren't budging on, you know, much of a discount. So because of that, you know, I've got to be a bit more thrifty. So while the Boxing Day sales may be tempting, she'll be avoiding the shops this year. There's been many times where I've queued right at the front before the doors open and run in. But this year, I think it's more about um, a bit more balance with life. 
But Boxing Day shopping is an event not to be missed for Hetty, who's travelled from the state southwest. I think I have to. <laughs> That's the whole point of Boxing Day, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I'm going to go there. <laughs> but do I spend? I don't know. Despite shoppers feeling the pinch this year, the Australian Retailers Association still anticipates a big day ahead. Paul Zara is the CEO. Well, we are expecting today on Boxing Day for Australians to splurge $1.25 billion in this single day, which is 1.6% up on last year, which will be a record. And that's off the back of fairly subdued trading through Christmas. The association forecast spending at department stores will drive the greatest growth, followed by clothing and food. But Paul Zara admits it comes after a challenging year for the retail sector. We've been navigating our way through increased cost of doing business crisis whilst there's been a cost of living crisis. So it's been a real crunch and cost of, costs have gone up across the board with that the utilities, insurances, wages. So retailers have had not such a, f- a fantastic time. Economic data backs this up. ANZ senior economist Adelaide Timbrell examines retail figures and she says when you account for population growth and inflation... The average household is actually expected to buy less items over this year's holiday period. The importance of Boxing Day over the last few years has really reduced as people have moved more of their spending earlier in the critical end of year trading period, particularly to kind of Black Friday sales and the like. So while we don't expect a cliff of activity on Boxing Day, and it'll still be a strong day compared to, you know, the average weekend in, in retail sales, we do think that it won't be a boom this year. There's a lot going against household spending, including higher interest rates, the impacts of bracket creep, uh, as well as high inflation. All of this is likely to be taken into account by the Reserve Bank when it meets next year to discuss whether to hike, hold or perhaps even lower the official interest rate. Isabel Masali reporting. The road toll in Australia is the highest it's been in five years. More than 1,200 people have died so far this year. There have been 13 deaths over the Christmas long weekend. Experts say there are probably several reasons for the spike, including the increasing popularity of SUVs. Reporter David Sparks takes a look. Travelling on Australia's roads became much safer in recent decades, but that improvement seems to have stopped lately. Russell White is Chief Executive of the Australian Road Safety Foundation. Whilst there's no doubt since 1970, you know, when our road toll was unbelievably around about 4,000 people a year dying on Australian roads. And since that time, what we've seen is obviously things like RBT, better enforcement, certainly better vehicle design in terms of safety systems, seat belts, all that sort of stuff, better road design, all that sort of thing. But the thing we've never really grappled with is, again, how do we change the human element, the human factors. Russell White says it's time to change how we approach road safety education. We've got to try and have more road safety education in schools. And that's obviously not driving, but it's teaching kids to be better road users. Also pushing for a revolution in road education is Chris Harrison. She's the manager of education services at road safety advocacy group Amber Community. It's a tough one, education in road safety, and I think there's a lot happening across Australia, like from primary school to secondary school to adults. We haven't got it right because we're still seeing a lot of road incidents across Australia. So why has the road toll been going up in recent years? Chris Harrison says the rise of bigger SUV-style cars could be one factor, as could the deterioration of roads due to bad weather. 
Russell White says mobile phones are causing big distractions. And the COVID pandemic might also have changed driver behaviour. There appears to be a massive change in people's perception of risk, their community connection, their resilience, and also, I guess, how they interact with other people and comply with the road rules. Those things combined with a bit more angst than certainly any research we've done. People have reported a significant amount of extra aggravation, lack of tolerance, lack of communication that's going on on the road. Chris Harrison also thinks the pandemic could be a factor. I really think that we're seeing some impacts of COVID as well. You know, our roads were really quiet at that time. There's a lot more stresses on people as a result of coming through that time, a lot of financial issues. And as the roads have got busier again, a lot more aggression, a lot more impatience out there on the road. And both these experts say governments should try to harness a sense of community responsibility to convince people to drive more slowly and more carefully. David Sparks reporting. There was some wild Christmas Day weather, hail and flash flooding in several parts of New South Wales and thunderstorms in southeast Queensland that have left more than 100,000 people without power. And of course, the flood cleanup continues in far north Queensland. During times like this, it's often hard for families to know how much to share with children. Experts say one of the best ways to help kids cope and to build resilience is to listen and to talk to them, as Nathan Morris reports. Who lives near the bush? Me. Nature and weather are talked about daily at the Blacksland Preschool, which is surrounded by the eucalypt forest of the Blue Mountains, northwest of Sydney. How's the bushland looking at the moment, do you think? Very, very dry. And before the school year ended, preschool director Dee Wild was discussing bushfire plans with a group of children. We get out favourite toy like my sister's bunny but she likes and bring them the fire trail is when the fire brigade can drive down in all of the rocks and that. Children do pick up a lot of what's happening around them. They might be seeing things on the news, they're hearing the conversations. The 2019 Black Summer fires are still fresh in the minds of the Blacksland community. When the 2019-2020 bushfires were happening here in the mountains, it was very confronting for a lot of families. Everybody was very hyper aware. So children would have been exposed to a lot of that. To help reassure children, she says it's important to listen and take on board their ideas. So when they do bring things up. We can respond to their questions, to their concerns, um, make sure that they feel safe. Let's have a look. I've got some red. That be seen and not heard sort of mentality, I'm hoping, is in the past. Michelle Roberts is a child psychologist specialising in child and adolescent trauma. I really think it's important that you think about your child and what sort of kid they are because there will be some children who are quite anxious and you will need to have the conversation but also be able to talk about what actions and what solutions and what are the strategies. To better support and prepare children for the emergency season, Michelle Roberts has helped develop a free online curriculum planning tool which has been launched by the ABC. The ABC's Laura Stone led the project. Particularly over the last five years, like if you think of where our preschoolers are up to now, they've lived through big bushfires and pandemic times and big floods, severe storms, etc. And we look at the ways that good quality children's media can really be helpful as a proactive way to support children. The toolkit was created in partnership with the Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience 
and includes material from the Red Cross, Emerging Minds and the ABC. What this toolkit helps to do is to put everything under one easily accessible umbrella on the ABC Kids website for people to dip into um, whenever they need. At the Blacksland Preschool, the children will continue to keep a close eye on the bush. And I, I think that's the driest place that I think I've seen. Hopefully we get some more rain. Blacksland Preschool Director Dee Wilde ending that report from Nathan Morris. The golden kelp forests in Victoria's Port Phillip Bay provide critical food and shelter for marine life. However, a soaring number of sea urchins and poor quality water have been destroying large sections. And earlier this year, a group of scientists and conservationists launched a project to try to stop that. Reporter Oliver Gordon has been checking on how it's been going. Deep underwater, a scuba diver threads a long piece of twine through a series of stakes planted onto a rocky reef. Scott Breshkin from Conservation Group, the Nature Conservancy, is filming the operation. So we had baby golden kelp that have been grown on twine at Deakin facility down in Queenscliff. And we're then taking that twine into the water and affixing it to the reef to try and bring back golden kelp into these barren areas in Port Phillip Bay. The Golden Kelp Restoration Project began because the native purple sea urchins have flourished, nibbling away at the kelp on more than half the reefs in the bay. For some changes that have occurred in the bay over the last few decades, changes in water quality and changes in the sort of the algal communities that are out there, it has meant these native sea urchins kind of become overabundant. And the problem is when it's overabundant is that it eats kind of too much and it doesn't give a chance for the system to kind of recover. The Victorian government-funded program brings together experts from across the state. One team has been tasked with cultivating kelp at the microscopic level so it can eventually be planted out at sea. Deakin University's Dr Paul Carnell has been one of the people in the lab overseeing that process. We go out to the reefs in the bay where, where we actually still have healthy kelp growing and we actually find bits of the kelp, which are the reproductive parts, kind of like the seeds. And we take those from the kelp in the field and we bring them back to the lab where we then get them to release those seeds and we seed them onto the bits of rope other bits of twine or onto rot, so uh, kind of about five centimetres or so across. Uh, and we then grow those through the other uh, different phases and then we can eventually start seeing them growing up into, into little baby kelp uh, after about uh, eight to ten weeks or so. And it's at that point that they're uh, handed over to the Nature Conservancy to actually go and do the gardening, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we want to make sure that they're, yeah, just big enough um, and then, yeah, they're ready to go out on, onto the reefs and, uh, and uh, start their new journey. The results are encouraging so far. And they've gotten to about eight or ten centimetres now and uh, they've survived in about half of the places that we've put them out at. But Dr Carnell admits the project is still in its early days. You know, you know, we've got a big job ahead of us. There's over 2,000 hectares of reef that have become degraded over the last 10 to 20 years in Port Phillip Bay. In the meantime, Scott Breshkin from the Nature Conservancy will spend some of his summer keeping taps on the newly planted underwater garden. Obviously, it's an, an aspect of my job that I love to do, to be underwater, to kind of be actively trying to put these things back into the water and restore an ecosystem is it's incredibly rewarding and fascinating work and i love seeing it kind of firsthand and how the system's changing um yeah it's super fascinating and, and a real privilege to kind of be under there um doing this great work 
Scott Breshkin from The Nature Conservancy, ending Oliver Gordon's report. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.